This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. In 1933, hundreds of thousands of people gathered in Nuremberg for the official Nazi party rally. Held from late August into early September, it was a celebration of Adolf Hitler's rise to power. And it was capped off with a speech from the Fuhrer himself. Hitler spoke for hours on end, captivating his audience with nationalist, anti-Semitic invective. Despite the length of Hitler's speech, the gathered masses never seemed to lose their enthusiasm. To outside observers, it was clear that the German people supported everything that spouted from his mouth. He was like a puppet master manipulating a horde of marionettes. Indeed, the effect Hitler had was truly hypnotic. Some might even say it was supernatural. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our first episode on Adolf Hitler, the rise of the world's most notorious dictator, 
is one of the most confounding events in history. For years, scholars and historians have been confronted by one question. How could such a despicable human amass such a dedicated following? The general consensus is that Hitler's hateful politics resonated with Germans during a difficult time. He was able to galvanize the country behind the Nazis' banner by harnessing Europe's ingrained anti-Semitism and Germany's shattered economy. But some people have ascribed even darker forces to Hitler's ascent. This week, we'll focus on the official story of Hitler's journey to becoming the Führer of the Third Reich. We'll examine his obsession with developing wonder weapons like the V-2 rocket and his final days in an underground bunker as Germany's war effort collapsed at the end of World War II. Next week, we'll look at three conspiracy theories that have emerged in the wake of Hitler's demise. First, that Hitler channeled occult, demonic powers to engineer his journey from beer hall rabble-rouser to unquestioned leader of Germany. Second, that he harnessed alien technology in his quest for advanced weaponry. And third, the chilling possibility that Hitler's tyrannical rule didn't end with him committing suicide at the end of World War II. Although he was born in Austria, Adolf Hitler identified as German. At the time of his birth in 1889, there were about 10 million Germans living in Austria, which accounted for about 35% of its population. Decades earlier, in 1866, Germany became a unified state. Though many German-speaking Austrians had hoped to join the newly formed country, they were instead absorbed into the nation of Austria-Hungary. However, many of them retained their German identity, and they formed what's known as Völkisch, which were nationalist societies that celebrated their German heritage. Many of these organizations actively sought an Anschluss, or unification, between Germany and Austria. As a schoolboy, Hitler was indoctrinated with the belief that, as a German speaker, he was superior to his classmates of other ethnicities. That feeling of superiority, however, didn't translate to actual talent. He was an incredibly poor student and an even worse artist. In October 1907, 18-year-old Hitler failed the entrance exam for Vienna's Academy of Fine Arts. Searching for a way to massage his bruised ego, he became even more infatuated with the notion of German superiority, and by extension, the inferiority of others. During his time in Vienna, Hitler supported the city's mayor, Karl Luger, Luger was an avowed German nationalist who advanced the idea of German dominance in the country and blamed society's ills on Jewish people. One of his popular refrains was, Vienna must not become Greater Jerusalem. Anti-Semitism has a long, dark history in Europe, dating all the way back to ancient Rome. But around the turn of the 20th century, it became even more pronounced. Although there are many factors behind this renewed wave of hatred, one very significant reason was the rise of the eugenics movement. Following the publication of Darwin's On the Origin of Species in 1859, Darwin's concept of survival of the fittest was superimposed onto human society, 
Although Darwin had nothing to do with it, what resulted became known as social Darwinism. It postulated that humanity was not a single species, but many, separated by factors like ethnicity and race. They fought each other for ultimate supremacy. Naturally, the pseudoscience of eugenics went hand in hand with social Darwinism. Eugenicists believed that through selective breeding of human beings, undesirable traits like disease and disabilities could be eliminated, and the so-called master race strengthened. Unsurprisingly, most who believed in eugenics believed that their race was superior to others. And because eugenics was popularized in white European circles, the notion that white Europeans were the strongest race became commonplace. In German circles, that race was called the Aryans. The concept of the blonde, blue-eyed Aryan specifically stemmed from a religion established in the 1870s called Theosophy. Founded by a Russian mystic named Helena Blavatsky, Theosophy drew from occult texts along with ancient Egyptian and Hindu mythology. It reimagined the history of humanity as a cycle of increasingly improving races. According to Blavatsky, humanity at the time of Theosophy's founding was in the fifth of seven roots, or iterations. The best of the current root was the Aryans, who descended from the people of the mythological island of Atlantis. Blavatsky believed the Aryans originated somewhere in ancient Persia, but in the late 1800s, Felkish Germans claimed that they were the true Aryans, citing ancient texts that seemed to place the Aryan homeland of Tula somewhere farther north. Hitler bought into this belief hook, line, and sinker. And when World War I broke out in 1914, he got the chance to put his convictions of Aryan-German superiority to the test. Along with thousands of hopeful recruits, Hitler marched into battle convinced that his side would emerge victorious. But in November 1918, after years of fighting, Germany surrendered. And yet, Hitler refused to accept that his belief in Aryan superiority was misguided. Instead, Hitler and other Felkish supremacists promulgated the so-called stab-in-the-back conspiracy theory. Akin to the modern deep state theory, that states a group of elites dictates all of our societal developments, the stab-in-the-back theory claimed that a shadowy cabal of socialists and Jews inspired to sabotage German war efforts during World War I. This baseless theory fed into the anti-Semitic spin on social Darwinism and eugenics. The only reason the Aryans had lost the war was because of the supposed corrupting influence of Judaism. But buying into the stab-in-the-back theory, Hitler and his Felkish friends could rest easy, knowing they weren't to blame for their own failures. Following the war, nationalist anti-Semitic political parties started popping up all over Germany. One of these groups was Munich's German Workers' Party, or the DAP. At first, the DAP was little more than a group of disgruntled war veterans who gathered in Munich's beer halls to complain about the state of the country. But once 30-year-old Hitler joined up in September 1919, that began to change, seemingly against all odds. 
What Hitler lacked in formal education, he made up for in charisma and conviction. He became one of the DAP's most enthusiastic members. Every meeting, he made impassioned speeches about what was ailing their country. Along with communism, or what he called Jewish Bolshevism, Hitler claimed Germany's greatest ill was the Treaty of Versailles. Signed in the wake of Germany's surrender in World War I, the Treaty of Versailles severely hampered the country's economy. It saddled Germany with massive reparation payments, shrank the military, and stripped the country of territory with valuable natural resources. With these restrictions in place, Hitler felt the Aryan people could never achieve what he believed was their rightful status as humanity's master race. As it turned out, a lot of people agreed with him. By November of 1919, the number of attendees at DAP meetings grew from a few dozen to well over a hundred. They were all caught under Hitler's spell, and he knew it. Taking control of the DAP on February 24, 1920, Hitler reconfigured it into the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or the NSDAP, better known today as the Nazi Party. Under Hitler's leadership, the Nazis' ranks swelled. People flocked to become registered members, owing largely to Hitler's magnetism. By the end of 1922, the Nazi party had somewhere around 20,000 members. Until this point, Hitler had been hesitant to make a power grab. Although his supporters were passionate, he didn't think he had enough of a following yet. But that October, Benito Mussolini and his vocal minority of fascist supporters seized control of Italy. Believing he was just as capable, Hitler started plotting his own move. Over the course of 1923, 35,000 more people joined the Nazi party, and those were just registered, dues-paying members. In all likelihood, Hitler's real support may have numbered in the hundreds of thousands, but he still didn't have the base to elect a Nazi majority in the Bavarian state government, and Hitler was too impatient to wait until he could. Like Mussolini, he wanted to simply seize authority by the scruff and never let go. The opportunity came on the night of November 23, 1923. Bavarian President Gustav Ritter von Kahr was scheduled to speak in front of a crowd in one of Munich's beer halls. Two highly placed Bavarian officials were slated to be there as well. It was the perfect time for Hitler to strike. With hundreds of armed lackeys surrounding the hall, Hitler stormed in with about 20 Nazi officers. He fired a pistol shot into the ceiling and declared the beginning of a national revolution. But there was little need for such theatrics. All Hitler needed to do to win over the assembled crowd was to open his mouth. After one of his typically impassioned addresses, he had the attendees' support. So, faced with little choice, Von Kahr and the other Bavarian officials ceded their authority to the Nazis. At first, it looked like the coup had been a rousing success. But a critical error was made. Trusting the Bavarian officials would keep their word. After letting the Bavarian leaders go, Hitler and his allies were declared criminals. 
The next day, the Nazis tried to lead a march on the Bavarian Defense Ministry, but it was no use. Hitler was arrested and taken to jail. Hitler spent the next nine months incarcerated in Landsberg Prison, but he refused to give up. Once he was released on December 24, 1924, he vowed to lead the Nazi party to even greater heights. He realized that he couldn't do it by copying Mussolini's March on Rome. Instead of taking power from the outside, he would take over the German government from within. Over the next few years, Hitler built the Nazi party from a mostly regional presence into a national movement, and his efforts were aided by others' misfortune. In August 1929, the American stock market crashed and ignited the Great Depression. The financial crisis spread to Germany, exacerbating people's economic anxieties due to the burden of the Treaty of Versailles. Desperate for a scapegoat, hundreds of thousands of Germans bought into Hitler's anti-Semitic nationalist message. By late July of 1932, the Nazis were the best represented party in the Reichstag, or German parliament. As such, Hitler felt entitled to the office of chancellor. As chancellor, he would be the second most powerful person in Germany, behind the president, Paul von Hindenburg. The position would put Hitler in charge of Hindenburg's cabinet and of dictating the legislative agenda. However, Hindenburg had the final say in who was awarded the chancellorship. While the president generally agreed with the Nazis' message, he was wary of Hitler's thirst for power. As a result, he chose to appoint the more malleable Franz von Papen. But Hitler refused to cooperate. Leveraging the Nazi plurality in the Reichstag, he obstructed the government at every turn. All legislation ground to a halt. Germany was at a standstill. After over five months of digging in his heels, Hitler finally got his way. On January 30, 1933, he was sworn in as Chancellor of Germany. However, his dream of complete control over the country wasn't yet realized. He didn't have carte blanche. So, he decided to get rid of anyone who stood between him and absolute power. Coming up, Hitler activates Germany's war machine. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, back to the story. Upon being made German Chancellor on January 30th, 1933, 42-year-old Adolf Hitler set his sights on gaining unchecked dictatorial powers. But in order to do that, he had to get rid of his opponents within the Reichstag. He got his chance on the night of February 27, 1933, when the Reichstag building erupted in flames. The arsonist was identified as 24-year-old Dutch communist Marinus van der Lubbe. He claimed he set the fire to inspire a people's revolution. But Hitler made sure that revolution never got off the ground. Mere hours after the Reichstag fire, Hitler's cabinet approved the decree for the protection of the people and the state. Sold to President Hindenburg as an emergency measure to fight communism, it granted Hitler broad judicial powers and suspended the right to assembly, freedom of speech, and other civil liberties. In times of grave security threats, it's not uncommon for governments to pass measures getting rid of bureaucratic red tape. For a modern analogy, this move was similar to the passage of the Patriot Act following 9-11 in order to monitor potential national security threats without going through an extensive warrant process. The moral implication of such actions aside, in Nazi Germany, this new decree allowed Hitler to round up every communist he could get his hands on. In the next two weeks, over 10,000 of Hitler's political opponents were arrested, including dissenters within the Reichstag. On March 23rd, with nobody left to oppose them, the Nazis passed the Enabling Act. It gave Hitler full emergency powers to pass legislation without Hindenburg's approval. Convinced that Hitler had taken the correct actions, the elderly president was content to let the Nazis take control. From then on, the Reichstag would be nothing more than a rubber stamp Hitler used to impose his vision. When Hindenburg passed away in August 1934, Hitler assumed the presidency as well. Finally, there was no longer anyone to stop him from unfettered authority. In order to cement Germany's position as a superior global powerhouse, Hitler approved nearly unlimited spending to revitalize the military. He didn't care that, in doing so, he defied the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. As the treaty's architects, it was up to Britain and France to enforce its rules. But Hitler was sure they'd be reluctant to use force. The memories and loss of World War I were still too fresh. He was right. Aside from what amounted to a verbal warning, Britain and France were too preoccupied to focus on Hitler. He was free to rebuild his forces without fear of reprisal. But authorizing spending wasn't enough. Hitler needed the physical resources to create his unstoppable Aryan army. In March 1936, Hitler sent forces to occupy the Rhineland, land that Germany had been forced to demilitarize in the Treaty of Versailles. Located on the French-German border, it was a major industrial center. Once again, Britain and France did nothing to intervene, and with the Rhineland back in German possession, the Nazis were able to churn out countless guns, planes, and tanks. 
Having more armaments at his disposal allowed Hitler to move on to the next phase of his plan, extending Germany's borders. In accordance with Hitler's belief in the Aryan master race, he felt the German people needed more Lebensraum, or living room. It just wouldn't do to have his people cooped up in small apartments. Every Aryan deserved to have a large tract of land to call their own. Over the next two years, Hitler used his army to intimidate Austria and Czechoslovakia into becoming part of the Third Reich. Through it all, France and Britain stayed on the sidelines. So when Hitler set his sights on annexing Poland, he was confident that he wouldn't face resistance. Hitler sent his troops into Poland in September 1939. Within a month, the German army had taken the Polish capital of Warsaw. Buoyed by triumph after triumph, Hitler felt like the rest of Europe was his for the taking. And he didn't think anyone would or could stop him. But Britain and France were finally paying attention. That same month, they declared war on Germany. At first, it seemed like the Western powers were no match for the Nazis. In May 1940, Hitler's army blitzed through Belgium and Holland. They entered France soon thereafter. By June 14th, the swastika flag was raised over Paris. However, no matter how many troops Hitler had, crossing the English Channel was too risky. But that's why he had planes. On July 10th, Hitler directed his air force's full might into British airspace. But the initial damage wasn't enough to force the British to surrender. And by October, the Royal Air Force was so successful that Hitler called off his bombing raids. With the fight against Britain at a standstill, Hitler decided to invade the Soviet Union instead. The invasion began on June 22, 1941. But the Soviet Red Army was more than a match for the Nazis. As the months dragged on, Hitler was faced with a daunting prospect, enduring a Russian winter. And winter wasn't the only problem. In December 1941, following the attack on Pearl Harbor, the United States entered the war. And instead of only focusing on the Japanese, as Hitler hoped, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt resolved to aid the British in their fight, too. Faced with the challenge of a two-front war, Hitler realized he had to adapt. Desperate to regain the advantage, he redirected Germany's R&D efforts into what he called wonder weapons. Although Germany had been trying to develop the nuclear bomb since 1939, Hitler's scientists didn't believe they could create one soon enough to impact the war. Instead, they devoted their research to creating more advanced planes, tanks, and missiles. With this laser focus, they created weapons technology like the world had never seen. In October 1942, German engineers tested the Tiger I heavy tank, which dwarfed the lighter Allied tanks and boasted weaponry that could maintain accuracy from over a kilometer away. Later that year, they developed a prototype of the first jet fighter, whose advanced engines allowed it to reach the United States and deep into Russia without refueling. But most frightening of all were the Fregeltum, or V-missiles, meaning retaliation 
they defied comprehension in their potential for destruction. Spanning 25 feet long, the jet-powered V-1 was capable of carrying a one-ton warhead from northern France to London in only 22 minutes. Relatively easy to manufacture, the V-1 had the potential to turn the war in Hitler's favor. After a few technical difficulties, a V-1 missile strike on London was scheduled for the summer of 1944. But just as Hitler was putting the finishing touches on his plan, Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy on June 6, 1944. Having established a solid foothold on the European continent, the Anglo-American forces were in prime position to advance into Germany. But Hitler still had his wonder weapons. Starting June 13th, Hitler launched hundreds of V-1s at London and other major British cities every day. By August 2nd, 1944, over 2,000 had been fired at the English capital. During that time, at least 5,000 civilians lost their lives. Thousands of homes and factories were destroyed as well. But rather than push the Allies back, the V-1 attacks only inspired them to advance faster. As the Americans and British pushed through France, the Germans were forced to dismantle the V-1 launch sites, lest they fall into their enemy's hands. The introduction of the even more powerful V-2 missile in September 1944 couldn't slow down the Allies either. And the Germans were just as unsuccessful in the East. The writing was on the wall. Germany was going to lose, but Hitler refused to surrender. He was going to force his people to fight tooth and nail until the bitter end. Coming up, Hitler confronts his own mortality. Now, back to the story. After Allied forces landed in Normandy on June 6, 1944, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis were officially on the defensive. With the Americans and British pushing in from the West and the Soviet Union advancing from the East, there was no longer a path to victory for Germany. But Hitler wouldn't give up. He would rather every German man, woman, and child die for his cause than surrender. Even on April 20th, 1945, Hitler's 56th birthday and the day Soviet artillery started shelling Berlin. Driven into a bunker underneath the city, Hitler was powerless. His closest advisors urged him to flee for a mountain stronghold, but he refused. He held out hope that Berlin could yet be saved. His underlings weren't so sure. Despite their assurances that Berlin could be defended, their actions told the real story. After Hitler's somber birthday celebration, Air Force Chief Hermann Göring informed the Fuhrer that he had to depart immediately. Göring claimed he was going to lead the defense in southern Germany. In reality, he was preparing to join his family and extensive art collection at a secret hideaway. Göring's departure was the first of many. Prominent Nazi officers Heinrich Himmler, Ernst Kaltenbrunner, and Joachim von Ribbentrop all joined the exodus from the bunker. Caravans of vehicles were streaming out of Berlin. Despite the men's pleas, Hitler refused to go with them. Hitler had sealed his fate. By the time he awoke on April 21st, the Soviet artillery was within eight miles from the bunker. 
That hardly mattered to Hitler. As he told an army commander, I will fight as long as I have a single soldier. When the last soldier deserts me, I will shoot myself. Though that quote might imply a sense of resolve, internally, Hitler was breaking down. After a military briefing on the afternoon of April 22nd, with even more bad news, the Fuhrer folded. After a half-hour tirade, he slumped into his chair, a broken man. Between sobs, Hitler admitted what everyone already knew. The war was lost. His remaining loyalists used this opportunity to, once again, plead for him to flee. Even though the Soviets were closing in, they maintained that escape was still possible. But Hitler wouldn't hear it. He would remain in Berlin until the last. Loyalists like Josef Goebbels saw the Fuhrer's refusal to leave as heroic. Goebbels was so inspired, he moved his entire family into the bunker, ready to die by Hitler's side. That end would come soon enough. Hitler was no longer mentally capable of coordinating the city's defenses, but he refused to delegate that responsibility to anyone else. With no clear command, the German military was lost. It stood no chance against the organized Allied dragnet around Berlin. Those in the bunker realized as much. On the night of April 22nd, as they drank themselves into a stupor, the conversation wasn't centered around the faint hopes that the Germans could still win the day. It was focused on how and when to take their own lives. By mid-afternoon on April 24th, the Soviet army had completely encircled the city. The morning of the 25th, Hitler's mountain home was reduced to rubble in a British bombing raid. By nightfall on April 26th, the Soviets were positioned less than a mile from the bunker. On the 27th, Hitler gave his blessing for his bunker mates to attempt a last-minute escape. But they realized such an effort was futile. Those who preferred to accompany the Fuhrer into oblivion, rather than be captured, were given poison capsules. On the afternoon of April 28th, the Soviets were only a few hundred yards away. But just as all hope seemed lost, news hit the bunker that Heinrich Himmler was trying to surrender on Germany's behalf. Hitler dispatched an Air Force commander from the bunker to arrest the subordinate Nazi officer. Improbably, the officer was able to evade the Soviet defenses and fly out of Berlin. His successful escape lightened the mood inside the bunker. In fact, there was time for one final celebration, Hitler's wedding. For years, Hitler had resisted marrying his mistress, Eva Braun. As he liked to say, he was wedded to his country. But as Berlin collapsed around him, Hitler finally relented. Throughout the years, Brown had been loyal to him. Even when presented with the chance to leave the bunker, she had refused. And now, they would go to their graves as husband and wife. Shortly after midnight on April 29th, Hitler and Eva Brown exchanged their vows. But there would be no honeymoon. Around 2 a.m. on April 30th, they accepted defeat. Hitler and Eva Brown retired to their private study. Before they did, Josef Goebbels' wife pleaded for Hitler to reconsider and try to leave Berlin, 
but his mind was made up. Sitting next to each other on a small sofa, Ava Brown took a poison capsule. Then, Hitler shot himself in the right temple. With the rumble of artillery shells above, Hitler's remaining loyalists rushed to cremate the bodies per his final orders. They wrapped the Fuhrer and his wife in blankets and carried their corpses outside. As bombs rained down around them, they poured kerosene over the newlyweds. There wasn't much time, but for whatever reason, their match wouldn't light. Out of desperation, Hitler's personal bodyguard told them he was fully prepared to throw a grenade and blow them up. At the last minute, someone was able to find a makeshift torch. As the bodies burned, Hitler's loyalists scurried back into the bunker. Nobody was present to witness the cremation. One German soldier who was patrolling outside the bunker later that day said nothing remained of Hitler and Brown except a pile of ash. Another claimed the bodies were intact, but shriveled to the point of being unrecognizable. Later, the Soviets claimed they'd recovered part of a jawbone and two dental bridges that a German dental technician identified as Hitler's. If that is to be believed, all that remained of the world's cruelest dictator was put on display in the Russian state archive. Without the Fuhrer to stop them from capitulating, the German army quickly surrendered. The threat of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis was eradicated. Or was it? Next week, we'll examine some of the most prominent conspiracy theories swirling around Adolf Hitler. Theory number one, Hitler rose to power with the assistance of the occult. Theory number two, the development of the Nazis' wonder weapons was aided by alien technology. Then finally, theory number three, that Hitler's life didn't end in that bunker. He continued to live on long after the world suspected him dead. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Alex Benedon, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. <laughs>